We move into the next section. Messianic power and warning of responsibility. Chapter 18, verse 31, through chapter 19, verse 48. This is the last section in this third major division. In this section, Jesus finally arrives at Jerusalem and enters the city and temple. Here the people receive him as their king who has come to conquer Rome. They do not understand that he has come to die in order to conquer their sin. So I told you at the beginning of this book and in every section we've gone into, there's four divisions. And the four major divisions are first, the introduction to Jesus and John the Baptist, their announcement and their birth and their childhood. Okay, But that's kind of a prologue. That's an introduction. Beyond that, the book of Luke is divided into three major sections where we basically go from chapter um, 4 through 9, roughly speaking, his, his ministry in Galilee. Then in chapter 9, everything changes. He points his face towards Jerusalem and for the first time announces that he's going to die. He's going to Jerusalem to die. He then three different times on this journey to Jerusalem says, I'm going to die. I'm going to die. And every single time, everybody does not know what he's talking about. They cannot grasp it. And so he makes his journey from Galilee through Samaria and down into Judah in order to go to Jerusalem to die. This section is the last section in that second major division, the journey to Jerusalem to die. And it is in this section that he actually makes his way into Jerusalem. It's the entrance into Jerusalem. It's the, the, the journey, the, 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 the arrival at the city, the entrance into the city, and then the entrance into the temple. Once that all happens, then that second section is now over with, and we enter the third section of him actually dying. And so this is where we are now. He is ready to enter in through the door to his death. The city of Jerusalem, the temple of God. Chapter 18, verse 31. Then Jesus took the twelve aside and said to them, Look, we are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be handed over to the Gentiles. He will be mocked, mistreated, and spat on. And they will flog him severely and kill him. Yet on the third day he will rise again. But the twelve understood none of these things. This saying was hidden from them, and they did not grasp what Jesus meant. Now, you don't get nice, little, neat, clear package than that. So Jesus took them to 12, only his 12, his closest. And he gathered to them and he said this, We are going up to Jerusalem. Now, you're like, wait a minute, Jerusalem is south of Galilee and they're moving south to Jerusalem, so how are they going up to Jerusalem? In the Jewish way of thinking and in the Psalms and in the religious way of thinking, you always go up to Jerusalem. No matter where you are on the map, you always go up to Jerusalem. Because Jerusalem is the city of God. Jerusalem has the temple. And it is the seat of the, the king, the political power that God anointed. And it is the seat of the religious power, the temple slash tabernacle that God anointed. And so in the Psalms, if you read this, there's some um, what's called entrance psalms, where they would sing these songs as they go to the temple for their festivals. And it's, it's always going up to Jerusalem, going up to Jerusalem. And so he says, I'm going up to Jerusalem, and I got to do everything the prophets have commanded, or not commanded, everything the prophets have prophesied. I am to fulfill everything, including death. 
You guys already have read and memorized all the prophecies of power and dominance and crushing the skulls of the enemy and establishing the kingdom of God and bringing world peace and all that kind of stuff. You get that already. And you've already memorized all the suffering passages as well, but you falsely interpreted this as Israel is the one who will suffer and the Messiah will come and conquer and vindicate them. And so he now is in the process of correcting their theology. Those suffering servant passages are also about the Messiah. And I am the Messiah. So I must fulfill those as well as the conquering ones because we know that he must first conquer sin, death, and the devil in the grave before he can conquer the political powers of the world. And so what he says is, you don't get any more clear than this. I'm going to be handed over to the Gentiles. They're going to literally mock me. They're going to literally spit on me. They're going to literally flog me. They're going to literally kill me. And then in three days, I'm telling you exactly how many days it's going to be. I'm going to rise from the dead, literally, and come back to life. And then the implication is I will usher in all those other things that you understand about the Messiah. And they all looked at him and listened, and they understood nothing. They did not understand anything he was saying. Part of it, is it says these things were hidden from them. But once again, we've talked about that already. What does that mean? Does that mean God was hiding the understanding from them? Or does it mean that they've hidden it from themselves? They have so bought into this worldview of who the Messiah is that they can't allow anything else to come in. There's a study where they've done, where they've, they've, they've asked kids, like, what do you think will happen if we do this? And they'll give a hypothesis. And they'll say, when we do this, what will happen? And then they do this study, and it's not what happens. Something else completely happens. And they repeat the study multiple times. And the one particular example that they gave uh, was um, the kids predicted that something would happen. I forget what was that, but it was basically Aristotle physics. And Aristotelian physics has been all proven wrong by scientists. Um, and what, they, what really was going to happen was Newtonian physics, which are actually some of our laws in science, and so they predicted one thing was going to happen, and they did their experiment over and over and over and over again. And the kids saw with their own eyes that this would happen, and it did happen over and over and over again. And they did it with their own hands and participated in it. And then when they went to take the test, they went back to Aristotelian physics and gave that as their answer. Why? Because the worldview that they, the world that they lived in, had made them think a certain way. And the, the, the media and the images of it was so powerful in their mind that it was going to take a lot more than just a few experiments to correct that worldview. And I, that could be the thing that's happening here. It could be that God is literally hidden from them. Or it could be that they have so bought into the pharisaical worldview of a scriptural interpretation that when somebody presents the only correct interpretation because it's Christ presents a new view to them they cannot compute it they, they it, the words are simple they're clear and in the case of these students they literally physically watch the things happen and in the case of the Pharisees or the disciples are going to literally watch everything happen all the way up to the resurrection and they're still not going to be like oh he said this they're going to be like it was all fall it was all failure. They cannot shift it. 
one of the hardest things to shift in us is our worldviews. These are the most powerful bedrock things in our minds. And we often don't even know what our worldviews are. They're so buried in our subconscious. They're so wrapped up with emotions. And they're repeated over and over and over again. You know when you've struck the bedrock of worldview, it's when you begin to panic. It's when the fear really begins to come in. It's when you begin to feel like you're losing control. It's when you begin to say, that's not possible. Okay, and then that doesn't necessarily mean your worldview is wrong. It just means that's when you know you've hit a worldview that you've bought into. Fear, panic, maybe even anger, or the words, that's not possible. And that's what they're saying. This is not possible. Scripture does not teach this. But Jesus, yes, it does. This is the beginning of the end. And they're moving there, and they know exactly what is going to happen. Yet that will not change what they feel after Jesus is killed. They will run and hide. They will run and hide. Verse 35 As Jesus approached Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the road begging. And when he heard the crowd going by, he asked what was going on. They told him, and Jesus Nazarene is passing by. So he called out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Now what's interesting is this guy doesn't just say Jesus. He acknowledges him as king. By calling Jesus the son of David, he's literally calling him king. Now this is important. Because we haven't heard this title used of Jesus directly by members of the crowd or the public. This is also right before his triumphal entry where he's going to enter into Jerusalem as king. And so this is making it very clear that the descendant of Jesus that has been prophesied is here. Have mercy on me. And those who were in front scolded him to get him to be quiet. You're a blind man. You're a sinner. God hates you. Shut up. So Jesus stopped and and ordered the beggar to come and be brought to him. When the man came near, Jesus asked, What do you want from me? What do you want me to do for you? He replied, Lord, let me see again. And Jesus said to him, Receive your sight. Your faith has healed you. And immediately he regained his sight and followed Jesus, praising God when all the people saw it they too gave praise to God. This healing is more to show the contrast between the crowd and the blind man. At this point, as the readers, we already know Jesus can do this. This is not shocking anymore. This is not awe-inspiring. This is not theologically revolutionary to us anymore. The point is to emphasize that after three years or more of Jesus doing all these miracles and doing all this teaching and speaking, And now he's ready to come and bring the culmination, the fulfillment of his entire ministry. The crowds still don't get it. And the blind man is actually the one who can see better than everybody else. They're all blind. And they're silencing those people still. You're not worthy. You're not a part of the kingdom of God. Isn't obvious by the fact that you're blind and you're poor. Yet the blind man is surrendering and submitting and humbling and throwing himself to the feet of Christ. And the point is that he is truly the one who can see 
and they're the ones that are blind. And Christ makes his physical life match his spiritual life. And yet the crowd is only wowed. Not, oh, I get it now. That is possible. They're still wowed because they're still thinking that's not possible. That's not possible. They're still blind. They're wowed by the miracle, but they're not reshaped in their worldview and their theology. And why is this so important in this moment? Because when Jesus enters Jerusalem, they're going to be wowed by the moment. But his entrance as king will not reshape their worldview or their theology. Because what they want is a kick-butt Messiah that will strangle Rome and shove it into the ground. And they think he's come. Two weeks later, when he hasn't done that, they will no longer be wowed. They will be angry that their worldview and theology has not been fulfilled by him, and they will turn on him and they will kill him. And that's the point here. This crowd is a shadow, shallow media frenzy crowd. And they will go wherever the government and the media takes them. They will go wherever the current theology and the way of thinking takes them. And Jesus wants followers. Chapter 19, verse 1. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through it. Now a man named Zacchaeus was there, and he was the chief tax collector, and he was rich. He was trying to get a look at Jesus but being a wee little man that he was, he could not see over the crowd. Okay. Oh, by the way, my translation does not say that. So. This is actually most likely not what it's saying. Most scholars today don't actually believe that the point is on Zacchaeus being short. Okay. Of all the things, the Bible has never that beggar. He was a really tall guy. Okay. Or the Bible ne- hardly ever tells you what people look like. Okay. We've talked about this in the first testament. The only time we're ever told what people look like is you can literally count it like on two hands. It's David being handsome, Joseph being handsome, Rebecca, Rachel being good looking, Bathsheba being good looking, right? And every single time, and all God does is mention their good looks. Actually, you can count more than two hands, but not much more. Absalom being good looking, Adonijah, the two sons of David. And every single time, it always gets them in trouble. Every time God mentions appearance, it's always the positive of their appearance, and it always leads to some great temptation. Either a temptation that they have attracted Joseph, and now it gets them in trouble because they resist it, and the world doesn't like that, or a temptation that they are that Absalom, and they take pride in it and think that the world should bend around them as a result of it, and then it gets them in trouble. The Bible never really mentions it. And knows that it doesn't say that he was short and couldn't see over the crowd because he was short. Or that he had to climb the tree because he was short. It just says that he was short. But he could not see over the crowd. There's no connection there in the grammar in any kind of way that the one is the cause of the other. In fact, we all know, have you ever been in a crowd? Unless you're really super tall, can anybody see over a crowd? Anybody? No. Okay. I was, when I was at the Renaissance Festival, um, I don't actually go into crowds much because I'm an introvert and I hate those. 
But the Renaissance Festival is a cool place, and I went there. And then sometimes I go to concerts, but concerts are always designed in such a way that you can see the stage. But the Renaissance Festival, there's the jousting. And I was in the back of the crowd with my girls, and everybody ahead of me was just the same height as me, and yet I couldn't see anything that was going on. It had nothing to do with my height. It had everything to do with crowd and distances. And so th that's not the point. And anybody who wanted to see things are going to try to get a higher vantage, right? I put my girls up on my shoulders, and they could see, and I couldn't. So I just sat there and listened. The point is not that. The Hebrew word, the, sorry, the Greek word here is actually a very difficult Greek word to translate. And the word that's typically used of being short is not being used here. And the difficulty of it points to the rareness of it. And the point, the fact that it is not used of not using the common word used for short, many scholars should, be should see this as was young in age, was a young man, which fits the context better because now we also have somebody who is young and is a tax collector, which is two reasons why he shouldn't be included in the kingdom of God. It's two reasons why he shouldn't be respected or valued in any kind of a way. And that fits the context better. You're like, wow, you really spent a lot of time on that word. Does it really change the meaning of the story? No. But remember, I just like ruining everything for you. So, <laughs> it's another one of those things that we just made assumptions. So he goes to see and he climbed up a sycamore tree to see him because Jesus was going to pass that by, by that way. And when Jesus came to that place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down quickly because I must stay in your house today. So he came down quickly and welcomed Jesus joyfully. And when the people saw it, they complained. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. But Zacchaeus stopped and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, half of my possessions, not all of my possessions, half of my possessions I now give to the poor. Most scholars believe that the reason he says half, like I'm only willing to give you 50%. Most people believe that he's making reparations on what he wrongfully took to people. Not that I'm going to give all my money away because all of my money was ill-gained. That's not true. He should be paid as a tax collector. He needs to make a living too. What most likely he's giving back to the poor is what he's cheated the people, what he's wrongfully taken. And so he's making reparations. And the Bible, and Leviticus especially, does not in the law, does not require you to give everything back to people, to give everything, if you wrong somebody, to give everything you up that you have to them. It just means that you are to make reparations and give back to them what you've taken and maybe a certain interest because of the inconvenience. And so this is what he does. Jesus doesn't tell him to do this, but Zacchaeus knows the law. And so in his repentance, he immediately begins to follow the law because Zacchaeus is willing to give everything up for God. The behavior naturally begins to happen, the correct behavior. And if I cheated anyone anything, I'm paying back four times as much. Then Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this household, because he too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. Jesus basically invites them to a party that Zacchaeus is going to host. Why is it important for you to understand that Jesus says, I'm coming to your house and you're throwing the party and I'm the guest? Because Jesus is the king. Jesus is the king, and he has the right to do that. But this king is not coming to suck 
from you in order to elevate his social status even more and to bring you up too because he knows how to use you correctly and he needs you to make himself look better. Jesus is going there to give him salvation and elevate Zacchaeus into the kingdom of God at the cost of his own life that will happen two years later, two weeks later. This is the difference between this king and all the other kings. And then when he saw that Zacchaeus was willing to lay everything on the altar in faith, that Jesus can do a better job of taking care of him than he can do of taking care of himself, Jesus says, that's faith. That's faith. And you're in, and they're not. Not because you're better than them, but because you're willing to give everything up for me and for the poor. This is the ultimate example of loving God. Well, I'm not going to say the ultimate example. It's a great example of loving God and loving others. For the Son of Man came to seek the lost and save them. The other thing that's really important to understand here is Zacchaeus did not distribute his wealth to gain status or honor. Rather, he was a social outcast who put his possessions in the service of the needy, needy and justice. It wasn't about look at me and what I'm doing. It's about making right what I've done wrong and giving to the need and exacting justice. He has told you, O oh man, what is right, to love justice and to seek mercy. And that's what he's doing. Salvation is the restoration of the sinner and the outcast to the community of Yahweh's people. Chapter 19, verse 11. While the people were listening to these things, Jesus proceeded to tell a parable because he was near to Jerusalem and because they thought that the kingdom of God was going to appear immediately. Therefore, he said, a nobleman went to a distant country to receive for himself a kingdom, then return. Now, he's telling this parable because he's reading the culture correctly. And the culture right now is praising him and celebrating him and anticipating him because they believe that he's about ready to dominate Rome and bring the literal kingdom of God in its physical sense on earth now. So to address that false worldview, he tells this parable. A nobleman went to a distant country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. And he summoned ten of his slaves, gave them ten minas. Now a mina is about three months' wages. Okay, so he's giving them each about three months' wages. You can do the math on what the average is in America and what you may. Do business with these until I come back. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him, saying, We do not want this man to be king over us. His citizens are the Jews, the Pharisees. They love him when he wows them with great teaching and when he heals them, when they pull the lever on the jackpot machine and get money, when they say, dance, monkey, dance, and he does a miracle for them, which he's not really doing it for that reason, but they think they're getting at that. But when it comes to actually truly surrendering to him and obeying him, that's when they're going to hate him. When he returned after receiving the kingdom, he summoned these slaves to whom he had given the money. So notice he's also making it clear that he has to go away in order to bring the kingdom. This is not the coming of the kingdom right now. He has to go away and get it and then bring it back. He wanted them to know how much they had earned by trading. 
So the first one came before him and said, Sir, your mina was made into ten minas more. And the king said to him, Well done, good slave. Because you have been faithful in a very small matter, you will be given authority over ten cities. Then the second one came and said, Sir, your mino has made five minas. So the king said to him, you are, you are to be over five cities. These men have been given a certain amount of, they've been given a mina. And what they've done while he's gone is they have invested it. Now, this is a financial investment that has accrued more financial wealth. But in the context of everything we've learned about Jesus, Jesus made it very clear that you're to invest your, your, all your resources in people. You're re investors in relationships. You are to invest in the betterment of people's lives and the betterment of the world. You metaphorically translate this. The idea is that these people invested in people. And, and, and they, can, they can say, look, this person's life is better because of how I use my skills and talents in their life, and, and I pursued them. And these people have come to Christ. And, and this corporation is working more efficiently, and it's making people's lives better. And this corporation is no longer cheating people and making money off of them and becoming more powerful off of the backs, broken backs of the people. This corporation is actually truly making people's lives better rather than gaining more power. This is what I have done. And God is so pleased with them that he gives them command over people, over cities. The way that they invested determines the authority that they have. And notice that the first person who produced 10 more and the second produced five more, neither one is, the first is not elevated higher than the second. He's given more responsibility for how he invests his money, but Christ doesn't have a greater approval rate over this person than the other person. All he cared about is that they did what they could with what they had. And they invested and returns were given. And so he praised them. This makes it very clear that you're given responsibility. If you invest in people and the way that God wants you to, rather than hoarding your resources and skills and money for your own advantage, then God will give you responsibility over things. He'll give you responsibility over more people or more corporations or more or, um, task or management or whatever. And so that doesn't mean that you're going to move up the corporate ladder to CEO if you're very faithful in the kingdom of God. It just means that more people are going to come into your life. They're going to be looking to you that you're going to be in charge of. And that could be as, as, as significant as you're going to get a job promotion that's going to put you not over like this group of people in this office, but over these multiple buildings. Or it could be as simple as you're incredibly faithful in the neighborhood and more and more kids and more and more families are going to come to you and seek you out for advice and look to you as a leader of how to run the neighborhood and that kind of stuff. And it's not just going to be one or two people who respect you. The entire neighborhood is going to respect you. And you don't have more power you don't have more social status and a CEO kind of a sense, but you do have more responsibility over more people as they come to you and seek you for guidance for how the neighborhood should be run and what's going on in their life. Does that kind of make sense? He's not talking about necessarily status and corporate ladder luck climbing. He's talking about responsibility over people and how they will come to you and seek you out. The greatest influence you could have is not the corporate ladder that you climb, but the amount of people that turn to you and seek your wisdom and your advice. If they're not turning to you, 
And that's not necessarily a good thing. I'm not saying it's a bad thing. There could be a lot of things going on in your life that explains why that is, but it's something to think about. So he rewards them. Verse 20, Then another slave came and said, Sir, here is your mina that I put away for safekeeping and a piece of cloth. For I was afraid of you because you are a severe man. You withdraw what you did not deposit and reap what you did not sow. The third man, the irony here is this guy has no idea who the, the master is. No idea. First, as he watches the first two men and he sees the way that the master treats them, that observation automatically proves his thinking about the master false. If the master truly was a severe, harsh man, who invests and, and, and takes what he wants from people and, and, and puts things where he shouldn't. And then he's watching this like, wait a minute, these people were good and they only, they only made like three times more for him or five times, five times more or ten times more for this guy. And then he gives them way more than what they gained for them. They gained this little bit of more money for the master and the master gives them all of this power and influence that is far greater than the, the interest that they, they gain for him. Maybe he really isn't a harsh, cruel man who takes where he wants and doesn't give back to people who need it. The other thing that's wrong and ironic about this man's view is that if this is truly the master, then his fear should have not caused him to hide the money. His fear should have done everything he could to make more money. And the point is, is that my people, the Jews, don't really actually get who I am. And not only, that, not only that, they can watch me over and over and over through the stories of the First Testament and even in their own lives, and they still don't get who I am. And then not only that, they don't even operate accurately based on what they believe about me. You are so blind. You are so blind. And as a result of that, you don't really know me. You, you have no knowledge of who I am. You have no desire to know me. And you actually think that I'm a horrible, severe, harsh ruler, and I'm not. The king said to him, I will judge you by your own words, you wicked slave. You knew, so you knew, did you, that I was a severe man, withdrawing what I didn't deposit and reaping what I didn't sow. Why then do you put the money in the bank so that when I return, I could have collected it with interest? This is clear too. It's like, well, you're like, oh, but if you risked it and you lost it, then that's all the more reason for the... No, a bank is safe. <laughs> yeah, you might have only gotten like 0.2% interest <laughs> or, or point whatever, 00025 right now, something like that. But it's still like better and there's no risk in that. So if you really truly believe that I was that, wouldn't you have served me even more? Even out of fear? But you didn't. So if you really truly believe that I am God, Pharisees, God is God, Yahweh is God, and that there really is this exacting, then why hasn't that changed the way that you've served me? He said to his attendants, Take the mina from him and give it to the one who has ten. But he said to him, Sir, he has ten minas already. I tell you that everyone who will be given more, but from the 
Every, I tell you that everyone who will be given more, but from the one who does not have, even what he has will be taken away. But as for these minas of mine, you did not want me to be their king. Bring him here and slaughter them in front of me. So Jesus makes it very clear. Everyone who invests in me and what I value will be given more. Everyone. I will always reward you. But those who do not invest in me and the people that I love, everything that you have will be stripped from you. This man is not saved and he does not go to heaven and he goes to hell because he valued himself more than he did God. He valued the power that he had more than the power of God. And he was more interested in holding on to his power, his way of life, control over his life, control over his hobbies, skills, and and intellectual property and money and all that kind of stuff more than he was in giving control to God. And therefore, he shows himself to not be a part of God and therefore not be saved. The third slave is portrayed as a one who called himself a follower of Jesus. He believed that he was a follower of Jesus. But in reality, he would not inherit eternal life because of his lack of knowledge of Yahweh and his constant inability to be obedient. He believed he knew God. He believed that he was following God. But because he did not allow what he saw and heard to change the way that he thought his knowledge and his worldview, and because of his constant inability to obey God, he revealed himself to not be a true follower. Several things speak to this point of view. First, Matthew's account of the parable in Matthew chapter 25, verse 14 through 30, make it clear reference to final judgment. Throw the worthless slave into the outer darkness where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is a clear, repetitive use of hell and eternal judgment. Likewise, Luke mentions the slaughtering of the enemies. You don't get any more damnation than slaughtering all the enemies who want to dethrone him as king. The Pharisees who were going to kill him and kill all the prophets before him clearly reveal themselves to not be of God. Second, the slave ends up with nothing, and what he thought he had, he never did. Luke 19, verse 26 is, they, is worded like Luke 8, 18, which states that those who refuse the light lose the light they thought they had. And third, and in Luke 19, 22, the slave is called evil, which connects him to the enemies of Yahweh mentioned in Luke 19, 27, which is a strong remark for final judgment. And fourth, the slave is called the other one, denoting him as being in a separate class from the other two, portraying him as the odd man out, which shows up frequently in Jesus' parables. And there are multiple instances of this. All these things point to the fact that even though he believed he was a follower, even though he believed that he worked for this man, even though he claimed him as master, he was not truly saved. Only when you allow what you see and hear from the Word of God to change your way that you think and your worldview and seek to be obedient to Him and place your faith in Him, only that is a mark of salvation. That's a mark of salvation. That's not the words. It's what you do with your heart and your energy and your control and your power. 